Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, being able to look at Amos. Even though uh, it's, a, it's a modest attendance, Lord, we pray that uh, you would nevertheless, your spirit would attend us and help us to understand and see the wonder of what you say through Amos. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So my two class, class pupils. Yes. Um, first, Amos. Okay, so I'm going to answer, ask the question, who is Amos? Um, Amos is basically a poor shepherd. Um, of low social status and that's actually really important for the prophecy because he spends a great deal of time on uh, social justice and so he sort of like knows it um, firsthand what, what, uh, what's going on right and so there are two biographical texts that talk about Amos uh, Amos 1 1 Eric can I have you read that uh, the words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Yeah, so it says he was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, there are two kinds of shepherds. You could be the shepherd, which means you're like the, uh, the owner of the sheep, uh, which means you're fairly wealthy. Or you could be kind of a hired hand. Uh, Amos was one of the hired hands, and we know that particularly because of Amos 7. Uh, Kim, can you read that? Yes. Then Amos answered and said to I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Yeah, so he says, <clears throat> not only was he a shepherd, but he's a particular kind of shepherd. He's a herdsman, which means he's a hired hand, right? Which means uh, he doesn't own the sheep. And then it says he's a dresser of sycamore figs. And so what happens is uh, he's a migrant worker. So on the seasons when um, the sheep uh, need to be cared for, he's, he's a shepherd. But in an off-season, he's dressing, which means, like, I guess, a cutting or pruning these sycamore figs. So he's a migrant worker. I mean, think about it. That's like pretty unreal that God called this prophet basically from, some, from someone who's really poor. Um, all right, point number two. What is the historical context of Amos' uh, ministry? Uh, the... The key to understanding Amos is that Amos comes as a complete shock to the people of Israel. Um, he preaches doom and judgment, and the people were not at all expecting doom and judgment because this was what's called uh, uh, the golden age of Israel. Um, what happened was uh, uh, prior to this period, Israel had shrunk in half. But under King Jeroboam II, who was the longest reigning king in Israel's history, 40 years, there was an unprecedented period of political stability. Uh, there was a, a, a string of uninterrupted good harvests. Um, the, the major threat at the time was Assyria, and it was like shrinking in power. And so, uh, so Israel doubled in size. It conquered all these lands. It was like this, it was like this period of everyone was getting rich. Not everyone, but... The nation was getting rich. Um, it was just this incredibly prosperous period. And then here comes Amos, this poor shepherd, and he says, within 30 years, Israel is going to be conquered and go into exile. And so no one is prepared to believe it. No one can accept it. It's just, it's crazy talk. It's crazy. And in fact, in Amos 7 there, I said that um, Amos is talking to this guy named Amaziah. Amaziah is the high priest at the time. And so Amaziah is sent to Amos saying, shut up. 
you're like really upsetting everybody, right? Um, I guess like the image is, you know, imagine at the height, because um, we're right now in a, in, in a recession, so it's hard, harder for us to imagine, but imagine at the height of like financial boom, and then this poor man comes to Wall Street and he's like, this whole place is gonna be destroyed in 20 years. And no one can believe it, who can accept it? And then maybe people say, oh, well, you know, um, this makes sense because Israel was pagan. You know, Israel was like, uh, uh, they're just like sinners and they're just uh, 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 in re pagan revelry. But that wasn't true because this was also a period of, um, of, of uh, religiosity. Israel was, uh, it was kind of like a religious renaissance, a religious revival. There was a temple complex at Bethel and uh, it was really bustling at the time. Uh, priests were busy scurrying about. The people were very uh, devout. They offered sacrifices all the time. And so it was a very religious period. Um, and so everything that the people felt and experienced in their life seemed to go completely against what Amos was saying. Right? So it, it was just really hard for, for people to believe. And so let's look at our first text. Actually, I have six texts and so my goal here is to kind of teach us to how to read Amos. And um, we're going to do close readings. And so the first text is Amos 9. And so let's have, uh, Meredith, can you read Amos 9? Uh, let's just read the first verse and then we'll go from there. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, Strike the capitals and the threshold shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left on them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. Okay, so... Um, I think what makes uh, reading prophecy really hard is that he's painting his images and we have no idea what he's saying, right? And so uh, let's, let's try to figure this out. What it, what's the setting, right? Obviously, they're in some sort of building, right? Um, and then we're given some hints what kind of building this is. It says, strike the capitals. Does anyone know what capitals are? It's kind of an architectural term that... Yeah, so you know how there are columns, right, that uphold a building, like this, right? And then the capitals is like the, the, the top of the column. You know how like they kind of decorate the top, the, you know what I'm saying? So this is, this is the capitals, right? So they're in a building that has columns, meaning it's a very big building, right? I mean, normal buildings are little tiny, you know, two or three story buildings. But this is a huge building that they're in because it, it has columns and it has these little capitals. And then, uh, does anyone know what the threshold is? That's a common word, right? Threshold is like the, the, the entrance, the floor, right? So God is saying, strike the capitals so that the thresholds shake. And then it says, the Lord was standing beside the altar. Where is this? What's the location? Yes, this is the temple. Okay? And so this is what's shocking, right? God is not saying um, judgment and doom is going to come. Look at the people, they're like sleeping with prostitutes. Or look at them, they're like committing murder. He says, judgment and doom are going to come upon them while they're what? Worshipping God in the temple. Right? And this is supposed to be really shocking imagery because, um, because they're being religious. Right? They're being in the temple. And yet judgment comes down on them in the temple. And then he says, I will kill every single one of them. And let's read on to verse 2. Uh, Meredith, can you read that? If they dig into Sheol, from Sheol they shall rise up. If they dig into 
there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I bring them down. Yeah, what is Sheol? Does anyone know? Sheol is kind of a Hebrew word. The reason why the ESV translation preserves the word Sheol is because it has such a rich um, range of meanings. But what is Sheol, like the common English word for Sheol? Huh? Hades? Yeah, that's the Greek word for it, but it's grave, right? And so he says, if you go down to the grave, I'm going to get you. If you go down to heaven, I'm going to get you. So that's as high as you can go, as low as you can go. God is... God's like, I'm committed to bringing doom upon you. Um, what about uh, the verse 3, Meredith? If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Yeah, so Mount Carmel in the northern kingdom of Israel is the highest uh, geographic point. And then it says, even if they're at the bottom of the ocean, I'm going to get them. You know. So again... The, the, the meaning here is that no matter where you go, no matter how far you flee, there's no escaping this judgment that's coming, the doom, the death. Um, verse 4. And if they go into captivity before the, their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Yeah. Even if they go into captivity, that's not even safe. Right? You would think, wow, being conquered by your enemies, that's pretty bad news. But even that um, is bad news because even in captivity, God will get them. God will make sure that judgment and death comes upon them. Um, and so, <laughs> Amos 9, right? I mean, when Amos is telling this to the people, people can't believe it. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the context or that's the, that, that's the, um, the key to understanding just what everything is going on. People can't believe it. They can't accept what's going on because, again, it's the golden age. Again, it's a period of religious revival. It just doesn't make any sense. It goes completely against what people are expecting and uh, what, what, what's considered rational. Any questions? No? All right, let's go on. So then why is Israel under judgment? Uh, remember last week I said that the key to understanding uh, the minor prophets, the prophets in general, is that they're covenant prosecutors. Right? Um, and so the judge, uh, the, the, uh, the prophets come as indicting the people for breaking the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant you can find in the first five books of Moses. And the specific element that Amos indicts the people, actually he indicts them for a, a range of things, but the, but the overriding sort of theme and the, the, the major concern is the social justice components of, uh, of the Mosaic Covenant. And so I have uh, there in a little italics, let's read it. Uh, I'll read it for you guys. One of the reoccurring themes in Amos is social justice. Amos exposes the ugly truth that much of Israel's prosperity was built on oppressing the poor. God has, has a special concern for the poor and outlines in great detail how God's people are to care for the poor and defend the poor, but instead um, Israel exploited and trampled on the poor. And what the Mosaic Covenant tells us is, is that God loves the poor and he identifies with the poor. And if you love God, you have to care for the poor. You have to advocate for the poor. And if you, if you don't, then you're in violation of God's law of the Mosaic Covenant. 
And um, what we read here is not simply that the people ignored the poor, but they actually um, perpetrated injustice to the poor, right? They, uh, they um, perverted law, perverted uh, what's right. And so let's look at Amos 2.6. Uh, there are actually two passages I have here. There, there's like a dozen, so I just picked two that I thought would be interesting to look at. Um, let's have uh, Dave, can you read Amos 2? <clears throat> This is the Lord. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I do not provoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Uh, okay, let's stop there, right? So what, what, what is uh, Amos indicting them for? They sell the righteous for silver, right? There's something called debt slavery. Uh, does anyone know what that slavery is? It's actually prescribed in, in the Mosaic Covenant. It's very foreign to us because we don't have it. Does anyone know? Is it when, when you're in debt you can sell yourself into slavery? Yeah, well, you, you borrow money, but there's no such thing as bankruptcy. So you can't say, oh, I don't have the money. So if you borrow some of money and you can't pay it back in the end, then you are you have to go to, you, have, you become an indentured servant. You become a, a, a temporary slave to the person you owe money to and you pay back that debt, which I think is a pretty good system because it prevents you from borrowing money um, kind of just like foolishly and just wasting it, right? We actually have handouts there. Oh, you can okay. um, And so there's something called debt slavery. And so what was happening is that the rich and the powerful were selling people into debt slavery, but it says they were selling them the righteous, meaning that these people didn't really deserve to be sold into slavery, so that the rich were doing something. Maybe they were exploiting uh, them in, the, in a difficult financial situation. Maybe they were using financial tricks. Uh, maybe they were perverting justice. And, and it says here, and the needy for a pair of sandals, right? Now, a pair of sandals is like what? Nothing. <laughs> and so the original debt, Amos was saying, was that it was something as small as a pair of sandals. And somehow through trickeries and financial uh, traps, what started out as a small, tiny debt, they ended up becoming slaves. Starting out with this little, this little, this little beginning, right? That's what the rich and powerful are doing. Uh, Dave, can you keep reading verse 7? Seven. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the, the way of the afflicted, they lay themselves down beside every altar. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's stop there, verse 7. So it says they turn aside the way of the afflicted. Um, the word turn aside here means that the poor, right, the poor were being sold in slavery, the poor were having uh, uh, their rights trampled on, you know, the legal system was being perverted, and so they would go to the courts. And then the rich and the powerful would turn them aside. That's what is going on here. And uh, this was a society in which justice was only for the rich. <coughs> and if you're poor, you had no redress. And so imagine the system where it's a corrupt system and you have nowhere to turn. Even if you go to the judges, the judges are in the pockets of the rich and the powerful. Uh, let's keep reading verse 8. They lay themselves down beside every altar of garments taken pledge. 
and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who, <coughs> who have been fighting. Um, there in the second line of verse 8 it says, on garments taken in pleasure. Does anyone know what that is referring to? So when you borrow money, uh, you give up collateral. And one of the collateral, if you're poor, your collateral is your garment, right? Um, this is your cloak that you, 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 uh, you need to sleep with at night. And so the rich would take that as collateral. And then the Mosaic Covenant says, you're supposed to return that in the evening to the poor, right? So even though that you're holding it as collateral, you have to give it back to them because that's what they sleep with. That's their blanket. But then the rich and the powerful, they were what? They were keeping the garments for themselves and they never returned it. And so there was a complete callousness. There was no compassion for the poor. And it says, um, they drank the wine of those who have been fined. The fines here is like in the court system, if uh, you committed a, a crime against somebody or if you, you wronged somebody, the court would fine you and they would take the money and, and pay the victim. But the rich and powerful were using the court systems. Again, this was a completely corrupt system, so it could have been all trumped up charges. They would find the poor, and then they would keep the proceeds for themselves, is what was going on. Yeah? Who, who were the rich people? Or like, were they like the Pharisees or Sadducees? Just yeah, I mean, in general? The, uh, it's not like it was the rich pagans. It was the rich people who were very, very religious. And so religion and wealth were like in bed together is what was going on in Israel. And so the rich didn't think that they were doing anything wrong because, you know, every Sunday morning they go to worship, they're singing praises to God, they're offering sacrifices, they're in the temple as we were looking earlier. Um, and so uh, uh, it, it, it was not like society was looking down on them. It was completely respectable what they were doing. But it was a completely corrupt system. All right, uh, Amos 5. Um, Melissa, can you read that? Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gates. Yeah. So Amos here, again, is indicting the rich and the powerful basically for two reasons. The first is that they were exacting taxes on the poor. Now, it's not wrong to exact taxes. Of course, you need taxes to have the functions of government. The purpose of government is to tax correctly so that you serve the, the, the poor and serve the people. But what they were doing is basically they were overtaxing they were using uh, the, the legal, they were using the political and state apparatus to really just press down on the poor. And then the second thing that they were doing there at the bottom of verse 12 is they said, you, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside, there's that word again, turn aside, the needy in the gate. The gate, um, the way a society worked is you had these gates, right? In the city. And then that's how you enter. The gate is also where the, the government sat, right? You know, we're kind of used to where this is the city and then here's the capital and then here's the court systems and it's in the middle, right? But in the ancient world, it was at the edge. And so the gate 
is where the judges sat, where the where the ruler, or the you know, the mayor of the city sat, and the poor would go to the gate to to seek redress, to seek uh, to, to seek relief because of the violations of the Mosaic Covenant. But then the rich and the powerful had the whole system gamed, and so they 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 were being turned aside. And then God says, in judgment. You're not going to enjoy these things. And I think what's really interesting is the description, and this is the reason why I put it. The rich and the powerful were living in houses of hewn stone there in verse 11. Um, to have, these are cut stone. So basically I was looking at the commentaries. This is the equivalent of mansions. I mean, uh, uh, to have a house of cut stone was an extreme extravagance. It was extremely expensive to create a house of cut stone. And the rich were living and living it up. They planted pleasant vineyards, basically for themselves. It was like these little pleasure gardens for themselves. And so, there, so what we see here in Israel was, um, what is it? Uh, extreme wealth inequality, right? Where you had a society in which there was the super wealthy, and they and they lived in extreme luxury and wealth, and then you had the poor the mass of the poor and they were being oppressed and, uh, uh, and, and uh, <coughs> ignored. And so, okay, here's the question. Does this apply to us, right? Um, this is a really tricky question. There's some commentaries that I look at that have sort of like a, a, a leftward political bent. And they would see a lot of parallels with the US. Um, I think it's a little bit tricky to draw uh, connections to politics. I'm a little bit wary of that. Um, but I will say this do we see the same kind of dynamics here right now in our society I will say absolutely right do we see extreme wealth inequality yeah do we see um, uh, the poor uh, not getting the same kind of legal protections as the rich do we see a situation where like if you're rich you can get justice but if you're poor you you really don't I think that's absolutely true and what does that mean does that mean you know we need to do something through the political system? I don't know. If you say yes, I don't think that's the wrong answer. If you say no, I don't know if that's I don't think that's necessarily the wrong answer either. But I think the application for us, at least I can say this with confidence, is that do we engage the poor or do we ignore them? Um, do we advocate for the poor? Um, just last night, I got sucked into watching this uh, PBS show called Frontline. And I was watching about. Um, uh, uh, how these uh, four poor uh, guys got falsely uh, imprisoned for a crime that they didn't commit. And basically it's because they were poor, you know? And do we, do we really, like, it was incredible injustice. It was, like, riveting. I, I went to sleep angry. <laughs> and uh, do, we, do we go out of our way to help them, to engage them, to identify with them, or do we kind of brush it aside? Because the system is corrupt, you know? I think even if we try to create a perfect system, there's always going to be situations where the poor just sort of slip through the cracks. Do we seek them out or do we sort of ignore them and say, and sort of push them out of our minds? And I think Amos here is incredibly relevant to us because Amos is saying that if you want to love God and follow God and be true to him, then you have to, you have to love, uh, you have to um, uh, advocate for the poor. Um, there's a there's a line here that uh, oh actually let's keep going so let me read the next uh, italicized section 
Um, you would assume that since the poor, the people trampled on the poor, the nation as a whole was godless and pagan. But what was so shocking about Amos's prophecy is that exactly the opposite was the case. Israel was a very religious nation with much religious activity and sacrifices and religious observances. On the surface, the people seemed very devout, but it was a religion of hypocrisy because of Israel's disregard for the poor. Um, so Danny, can I have you read Amos chapter 4 uh, there? Just read the first uh, two lines. Yeah, so remember I said that Bethel was a site where the temple was, right? And then the word transgress means to sin, right? And so Amos says something that is really crazy. What does he say? He says, go to the temple and sin. And I think this is a huge paradigm shift for us because we usually think of um, these two things as separate, right? There's the sinner and there's the religious person. If you're religious, you're not a sinner. And if you're a sinner, you're not religious. But Amos says, go to the temple and sin. Right? And he's saying this with dripping with sarcasm. In other words, these two things have become married in Israel. Right? They, they, that, that, it was pop, that not only were you a sinner, despite the fact that you were religious, you were sinning through religion through your worship, right? Let's keep reading. Um, uh, where, where are we? Danny, can you read the, can you keep reading through it? Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every few days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving for that which is leavened. And proclaim free will offerings, publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel. Yeah, he says, bring your sacrifices every morning. You don't, you, you're only supposed to bring your sacrifices in the three feasts. But they're bringing them every morning. And it says, bring your tithes every three days. Why is that remarkable? When are you supposed to bring your tithes? Tithe is once a week, right? But they're bringing it like twice as often, every three days. And so these people are like hyper-religious, right? They're like, they're, 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 they're offering lots of money to God. They're sacrificing you know, and they're very like public about the way they do it. You know, in verse five it says they publish them, and God indicts them because He says you love to be religious, but you're actually just sinning against Me. Let's keep going on, and this is God's reaction. Amos five. Uh, Carolyn, can you read that? Wait, wait. Let's stop there. I mean, I, it's kind of shocking. I hate. I despise your feasts. These are the religious feasts. <coughs> Um, these are worship services. And God says, I hate them. I despise them. It's like shocking. Keep going, verse 22. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever Yeah. He says, uh, uh, Amos says, right, in verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. I think that's crazy. They're in the worship services, they're in the temple, and they're singing praises to God, and God's saying, your songs repulse me. They disgust me. You know, all your worship services, all your Bible reading and praying and uh, listening to sermons, all of that disgusts me. Why? Because your religion in the end is totally inauthentic. 
Why? Because again, it's this. You, you disregard the poor. So because you don't engage the poor, because you don't love the poor, because you don't advocate for the poor, everything else you do is empty, it's hypocrisy, it's disgusting to me. Right? And then uh, I, have a, uh, I want to read to you from James uh, 1.27. James says, Religion that is pure and undefiled is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Right? And so that's true religion. Um, that unless you're engaged with the poor, everything else you do is, is really meaningless. In fact, it's not just meaningless, it's sin. It's like offensive to God. Um, and then in verse 24, he says, but let justice roll down like waters. So he's saying, I don't want your fake religion, but this is what I want. I want justice to roll down like waters. This is, this is a line from a famous speech. Does anyone know what speech this is from? Let justice roll down like waters. Maybe I should say it with the cadence and lilt of the, of the speaker. Neiman, do you know? Yes, this is the famous uh, I have a dream speech, right? In fact, uh, Amos was the book that uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. quoted from very, very frequently. Even in that speech, he quoted several times. And so the image here is, and I think during the Civil Rights Movement, it makes an enormous amount of sense that he drew incredible inspiration from, from that. And the reason why Martin Luther King Jr. was quoting from Amos is because he wasn't saying, let us have justice, let us have uh, um, racial equality simply because it's good, simply because it's right. Isn't it obvious? No. He was going to the Christians in the South, the white Christians, and he was quoting the Bible to them and saying, live the Bible. So he was, he was drawing on the resources of Christianity. But in any case, he says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's, a, it's an amazing imagery that justice would be like this flood that would come, you know, just overwhelming flow. That's what God wants. That's what pleases God. That's true religion. Any questions here or any comments? Okay. Let's turn to the next page. Uh, what is the hope of Israel? Um, so you would think, all right, so what's, how does the story end? Uh, the passage I have there is the very, very end, the last five verses of Amos. How does the story end? The people, Amos comes, he says, you have broken God's covenant. And the people are like, oh, yes, we have broken. We, we repent in dust and ashes. Forgive us. No. There is no forgiveness. There is no repentance. There is no uh, coming under conviction of sin. The, uh, the, the, uh, right up to Amos chapter 10, Amos is like, you deserve judgment, you deserve judgment, you sinned against God. And the people are completely callous and cold and hard. And there's like no, no, uh, no longing for God, no, no wanting to repent. And yet, despite that, starting from Amos 11, Amos pronounces grace and forgiveness. And what is the point? The point is, uh, it's by, salvation is by grace alone. It's not even because you want to repent. It's not even because you repent. But even before you even want to repent, even when your heart is hard, God comes to you and says, I forgive you, I love you, and I'm going to restore you. Right? And so we're going to look at this passage. Uh, it's, a, it's really an amazing passage. Um, but let me just remind you about the Mosaic Covenant, okay? Because this is important to what's going to come up in this passage. Okay? The Mosaic Covenant gave you two things. 
right? If you obey, you will live a uh, life, right? Life, and you will prosper in the land, right? If you disobey, death, and then you will experience exile from the land, okay? Israel <laughs> did this, right? They disobeyed, and therefore they deserved death and exile. And then this is what God says to them. Instead, um, can I have, uh, Naaman, can you read Amos 9? Oh, oh, yeah, keep going. Okay, let's stop there. So he says, I will raise up the booth of David. Does anyone know what booth means? What is booth? It's kind of like a word we don't normally use. But it, we kind of use it. Like at a fair, what's a booth? <laughs> you all speak English, right? <laughs> It's a little tent, right? Yeah, it's a tent. Yeah. Uh, the problem with the ESV translation is like they're not at all friendly to you, right? Like you go to the NIV or even like uh, uh, the message and they're like, how are you for here? This is the word booth. The, uh, the message won't even give you the word tent. They'll just say the house. <laughs> okay, so what is he talking about? The tent of David is the line of David, right? The Davidic kings. And actually this is remarkable because the Davidic kings were not at all good. They were all, not all, but most were corrupt and bad and evil. And yet God says, I will bring to you, I will raise up a king from the line of David. In other words, he will, the, the salvation will come in the form of a savior king. Right? And then it says uh, in verse 12, and all the nations who are called by my name, right, will, will come to God. And so it's this whole idea that from the savior king, Right? The whole world will know salvation. And then let's read on verse 13. Um, can I have Meredith read it? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, um, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the... Okay, okay, let's stop there. Okay, so... Um, the, the day of salvation is coming, right? God promises. By the way, purely by grace. And then this will usher in prosperity. Remember, um, if you disobey, you deserve exile and death. And only if you obey do you get to prosper in the land. But God is promising, you know, prosperity. And then this description of prosperity is really incredible. It says, uh, the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Now this is an agricultural uh, image, and so it makes no, like, uh, no resonance with us city folk. But what is, uh, what is a plowman and what is a reaper? Let me write these two words down. Plowman, reaper. What is a plowman? Yes, right? So, okay, so this is how it works. And, and forgive me if I have to draw the graphic for you guys because I'm that ignorant. Here's your, here's your farmland, right? 
and then it's like empty. And so the plowman comes at the beginning of the uh, growing season, and he plows the land, right? I guess like you prep the ground. You, you, everyone's nodding like they know more than me here. Okay, so so that's what you do, right? And then what happens? You plant the seeds, right? And then through the growing season, you crops grow, right? Okay, this is supposed to be corn, but okay. Right, the crops grow, and then what happens? At the end of the growing season, the reaper comes, and the reaper harvests, harvests all the, the crops, right? And after the reaper harvests the crops, the, the ground is again empty, and then the plowmen come back. Now, what does it say here? The plowman shall overtake the reaper. What is he saying? What's, what's implied? There'll be so much harvest that the reaper won't have Yes! Time. The reaper comes, and it's like so much crops. He's like, oh my. So he's like harvesting, 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 but there's just so much that the plowman's like, Dude, you're not done yet? It's time to plow, right? So the plowman overcomes the reaper. This never happens. But this is an uh, image of incredible bounty, of incredible prosperity. The same thing with here, right? The, um, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, right? Uh, the person who sows the seed will overcome the person who's treading the grapes. And then the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow from it flow with it. I mean, wine was a picture of the greatest blessing that you could have, right? It's this wonderful uh, uh, feast drink, and there'll be so much of it, the mountains will just be flowing with it. And so there's this incredible prosperity. Mind you, right? I mean, I wish like we could just read through all of Amos uh, 1 through 9 and kind of get the full impact of it. It would take us over an hour probably to read it. But... Um, you, you read judgment, 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 sin, sin, sin. You ignore the poor, you ignore the poor. And then you get to Amos 9 at the end, and, and God's like, the mountains will flow with wine. The, the plowman will overtake the reaper. And then you're like, this is like amazing. This is grace, you know. Verse 14, can I have uh, Eric read it? I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, they sh and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Alright, this is the final thing, and this is very important. This is why I talked about covenant theology last time. right? God says that the, the final blessing is that they will return to the land. Okay? Because remember, what's the judgment? By the way, exile is going to happen. It doesn't, despite all these promises of blessing, they're going to be exiled, right? Because Amos says, you've broken the covenant, you're going to be kicked off the land, and you're going to go in exile. And then the, the, the promise of, of salvation and blessing is that they're going to come back to the land. What is Amos talking about? Is Amos talking about the actual land itself? And I would argue no. He's talking about salvation. The land here is a picture of salvation. Okay? And here, I think it's helpful if I review the lesson from last week, okay? So here's biblical history very, very quickly. Right? So here you have Adam. Remember, this was called the covenant of works, right? 
Okay, and then you had Abraham as the next. And then you have Moses. And then you have uh, Christ. Okay? And then after Adam failed uh, the covenant of works in the garden, right? Right? Obey and you live. Disobey and you will die. Adam disobeys, so he fails the covenant. And then God gives his people what's called the covenant of grace. Right? You'll be saved by grace because of what Christ has done. And this covers all of redemptive history from that point forward. From Genesis 3 all the way to the end, you're saved by trusting in the promise of God and the coming Savior. Right? And then we talked about the Mosaic Covenant. And in the Mosaic Covenant, you have something that's a little bit strange. The Mosaic Covenant is still um, in the covenant of grace. Everyone who is in Israel is still saved in self, with respect to salvation by trusting in the Savior. But nevertheless, you have this language, obey and you will live, prosper in the land, and then disobey and you will be exiled from the land. Right? And... When and so what happens is at the end right here is exile, right? Because they break the Mosaic covenant, and then God says in Amos nine. And by the way, this is not just Amos nine, but all throughout all the prophets, uh, God says, "You will come back to the land, return to the land." Right? And so this is the key question: What is He talking about when 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 they're going to come back to the land? And, the, and is it the land itself? And the answer is no. In fact, Israel does come back to the land, right? After the exile ends, they return back to the land. And do you remember what happens with, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah? The people come back to the land and they rebuild the temple. Do you remember how the, what, what the people do after they rebuild the temple? They weep. Do you know why they weep? Because they look at the temple and they're like, this is not at all like the temple of Solomon, right? They weep. And then... Do the, is, is, is God's promise true, right? He says, and, and um, verse 15, and, and they will never be uprooted out of the land ever again. They will, never be ta- they will never be conquered. They will never be exiled ever again. Does that, is that true? No. What happens after the people come back to the land? They're conquered again. They're conquered by Alexander the Great and they're conquered by the Romans, right? That's why when Jesus comes, people are like, what's going on? Why are we under captivity? When is this promise of returning to the land going to come true? Right? When is this? And that's why they thought the Davidic king, right? This promise, the 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 booth of David will be raised up again. The Davidic king will come and he will kick out the Romans because they thought they're going to come back to the land. But this is what what's going on. This is why it helps to understand all of, all what's going on. That remember the promised land is a garden land. Right? So this is, a, this is a garden-like land. This is a garden-like land. And it's ultimately pointing forward to the ultimate garden land. Right? That all of these, all of these, uh, all of these lands represents fellowship with God. Okay? And so... When God, so why did, I mean, remember, here I'm throwing in so much complexity, sorry, but why did, 
Why did God put Israel in the promised land? So they could re-experience the failure of Adam in the garden. And at the end, they experience exile. And then at the end, they can experience salvation. Right? So they understand salvation is by grace alone. And the whole point was that the land was an object lesson. The whole point was that the land was temporary to help them to understand they could not keep the land. They could not keep fellowship with God. They couldn't keep heaven. Right? Because the land, the Garden of Eden, the promised land, was a taste of heaven. They couldn't keep heaven based on their obedience. The only way they could have heaven is by grace alone. The only way they could have this incredible bounty, uh, uh, this prosperity, is if somebody else, the Savior King, does it for them. Right? And so when Amos says, you will come back to the land, he's talking about this. The new heavens and the new earth. He's talking about salvation. Now, how do I know that this interpretation is true? By the way, there is another interpretation that says, when Amos says, return to the land, he's literally talking about the land of Israel in the Middle East. And that Israel is still waiting to go back to that land. Right? That Amos hasn't come true yet. Amos has absolutely been fulfilled, right? And this is the proof. Look at Acts 15. Let me read it for you. This is Peter's sermon on at Pentecost, right? Um, and this is what Peter says. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, right? He's talking about how Jesus is the Messiah. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. He quotes Amos 9. And what does Peter say? Amos 9 has been fulfilled. Now some of you might say, hold on, time out. He doesn't quote all of Amos 9. He only quotes the top of Amos 9, right? The first part uh, about the Savior King. He doesn't quote the promise of the land. Two answers to that. Number one, that's not how quotations work. Actually, Eric and I had a conversation about this. The way New Testament writers quote the Old Testament is you just quote the beginning. And when you quote the beginning, you quote the whole thing, right? Because it's, it's just it's a waste to quote the whole thing. Right? That's how you quote. You just quote the beginning, and it refers to the whole thing. The second thing is, look at, look at verse 11 in Amos 9. It says, in that day I will raise up. It's one day. right? It isn't, I will raise up a savior king, and then a long, 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 long time later, the people will come back to the land. In that day, one day, the savior king will come, and the people will come back to the land. Right? And so we're not still waiting for Israel, the Jews, to go back to the land. We have it right now. We are in the land. And then um, the ultimate proof of that is, of course, Hebrews 11. Let me read to you Hebrews 11, right? Uh, By faith, he, speaking of Abraham, remember the promise of the land wasn't just given to, in the Mosaic Covenant, it was given to Abraham, right? That That was the Abrahamic Covenant. The promise was... He was going to come to a land, right? Remember. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, right? Canaan. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham knew, even as he was going to the promised land, this isn't it. This is only a picture. The real thing, the city with foundations and designer is God. The real thing is heaven. The real thing is salvation in Christ. The real thing is fellowship with God. He, Abraham knew that all along. Let's read on. Verse 13. All these died in faith. He, who are all these people? All these um, 
heroes of the faith, right? Moses, Abraham, King David, all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What's the things that they didn't receive? It's this. God had promised them, you're going to have the land. And they died not having the land. Even as they were on the land, they didn't actually have the land. Why? Verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. Right? That's crazy language. Even as they were on the land, they were seeking a homeland. Verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Right? It's not the land that they left. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do you see, what, do you see what's going on? The Garden of Eden, the promised land, the new earth, it's all the same thing. It's fellowship with God, it's salvation in Christ. And everyone in the Mosaic Covenant knew that, who were God's people. And so even as they were experiencing exile, they knew that when... When Amos promises return, he's talking about salvation. That might be a little heavy. <laughs> but this is why I had... I, I, otherwise, how do we understand Amos 9? Do we say, oh yes, God has fulfilled Amos 11 through 12. No, not even 12 then. Amos 11. And we are still waiting for God to fulfill 12 through 15. No, God has fulfilled Amos 11 through 15. We have the promise in Christ. We are already we are already living on promised land. We are already in the new heavens and the new earth. Not yet. Not in the fullest sense. But we're already there. You know, we have one foot in the promised land. And one day Jesus will come back and the whole earth will be transformed. And we will have, you know, the mountains will drip with wine. The plowman will overtake the reaper. Any questions? Or maybe you don't understand. <laughs> but hopefully I try to make it understandable. All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible promise in Amos. We know, even reading Amos, that not only was the people of Israel guilty, we are guilty. We neglect the poor. We don't love the poor as we ought to, but we tend to our own needs. We're selfish. Uh, we hoard our own wealth. Lord, we confess. We confess our sin and culpability. And, and yet, Lord, we rejoice that you have sent a Savior King who died on our behalf, who lived the life we should have lived, and died the death we should have died. And because of his substitutionary death, we have the promised new heavens and new earth. We have salvation in you. Thank you so much. We pray that as a result, now we would love the poor uh, as you love the poor. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.